So this morning we are continuing our series that we're calling Understanding the Times. And today we're going to talk about a subject that I'm sure you all have been dying to get to. It's on your mind all the time. As soon as I mention the topic, you're like, yeah, you're going to just hold your applause. We're going to talk about economics. Now, there's about three of you like, yes. And the rest are like, oh, yes. Well, it's a huge topic, and we're not going to be able to cover anywhere near the complexity that, uh, that we need to, even as Christians. The Bible has a lot to say about economics, a lot about money and wealth and productivity and all those kind of things. Uh, and it is a massive topic, and there's a lot of diverse opinions, a lot of different theories. We're not going to get into all of those, but we are going to look at what the Bible has to say in juxtaposition to what uh, so much of our culture is saying right now. Uh, but it is, it's a big one, a big topic. Uh, as Dan and Eric and I were studying together on Friday, Eric, who's preaching at uh, East tonight, was just saying, you know, we were kind of both exhaling, like, how do we cover this in one sermon? We got in bed last night. Krista said, is this going to be less than two hours long? <laughs> I won't tell you how I answered the question. Uh, yes, it'll be less than, than two hours long. Uh, what I want to do is look at a couple of passages that... Um, may surprise you, they're, they're not talking about the, uh, the theories and biblical philosophy of economics per se, but embedded in the discussion are some of the principles that we need to know as we evaluate our culture. So we're going to look at a couple of, of those passages. I want to start with a little quiz. Raise your hand if you think this verse is in the New Testament. All right, four of you think do... Don't go weary of doing good is in the New Testament. All right. You four are correct. Now, do you know where in the New Testament? I mean, this is a, this is a common verse. Uh, there's a, one of our elders that likes to use this as an expression of encouragement frequently. When you are, uh, when you're, you know, for us as pastors, as we are under the weight and the pressure of, of things going on in ministry, they, he will encourage us with, do not grow weary of doing good, or someone who's really having a hard time, but they're trying to do the right thing, and we quote this verse, do not grow weary of doing good, but I've been asking people this week, do you know where that verse is? And everybody goes, uh, Paul, I think, yeah, Paul, good. What's that? Which Thessalonians? Okay, yeah, that's good. We're narrowing down. So 2 Thessalonians. Well, not this one. This is, Galatians, or this is 2 Thessalonians 3. And the question then is, in 2 Thessalonians, what's the context? Very different from Galatians. What's the context? And it may surprise you that the context is earning a living. That's what Paul's talking about when he makes his statement, do not grow weary of doing good. So we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for a bit. So here's what he says. Uh, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. I want to focus in on that word unruly for a moment. And not according to the tradition which you have received from us. An unruly life. There are brothers, he calls them brothers, so we're talking about fellow Christians here. He says there are brothers there who live as though there are certain rules that do not apply. Right? That's unruly. 
Next verse. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. This is the same root word as unruly. Here they translate it undisciplined. So these brothers in your midst are not acting with the kind of discipline they should be showing. So there's a, a lack of, of rules. There's a lack of uh, discipline. It could be translated disorderly. There's a lack of order in their life. And he's not making just a universal statement that they're uh, crazy, unruly, and everything, but he has something specific in mind, which becomes clear as we go. Next verse. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. This is Paul saying, when we were with you, we worked, we and the other leaders, we worked night and day. And he's talking about not preaching the gospel, not ministering. We worked, we did our income-producing job day and night. And notice labor and hardship. Those are heavy words. Those are, those are weighty words. He uses that same combination of words, uh, labor and hardship, in another place where he talks about being in the middle of the, of the sea for a night and a day. Hardship. He said, we worked hard, really hard. Why? Because he didn't want to be a burden on any of them. Well, what would the burden have been? They paying for Paul's bread. I mean, this is mundane stuff. But he says, we worked really hard night and day so you, Thessalonian Christians, would not have to bear the burden of feeding us, of paying for our bread. And this is what I commend to you, he says. Follow our example. That's what he goes on to say next verse. Not because we do not have the right to this. In other words, we have the right for you as the church to support us. God has set it up so that missionaries, in their case apostles, teaching elders, we are supported by the church. So we have the right to this, he says, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example, we worked night and day, worked hard. So you would see this is how we're supposed to Please Jesus through our work. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. There's a correlation there. If you're not willing to go get a job, then the church should not supply food. And that sounds kind of harsh, kind of unloving, Unmerciful, uncompassionate. But that's, that's the law of Christ. He says, no, no, you, you have to put forth the effort and work and don't presume upon the generosity and provision of the church. Work so you can eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. There's that word again. An undisciplined life doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. We've all experienced this, have we not? When there's a, a period of time when, when you're not working regularly, there are great temptations that come with that. 
As you know, every three years, I get a three-month sabbatical. And if I go into that sabbatical thinking, ah, I'll figure out whatever I want to do as we go, all kinds of temptations come in. And one of them is to waste my time. So though I'm resting from my ministry duties here, I have to have a plan to use that time well. Otherwise, I might be tempted to be what Paul here calls a busybody. This word can be translated meddler, right? You're not busy working, so now you start meddling in other people's affairs and and getting in their way and then gossiping about what they're doing and not doing. This is one of the results if you don't have work to do and aren't applying yourself to that work. So we hear that's happening among you, and Paul's saying, don't, don't do that. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now there's a principle we're going to come back to that's important for our day. So work so you can buy your bread and eat it. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And what is the good? It's working and earning a living. Now, of course, this presupposes you are able to work. There are exceptions to all these things. And we have those periods of time when maybe you're looking for a job and you can't find it. But the, the ambition should be, I want to work so that I can not be a burden on anyone else. So let's look at just lining up God's word here and some principles we can draw. An unruly, undisciplined life in this context is neglecting to work for income. He calls that an unruly, undisciplined life. He says, don't eat anyone else's bread. Don't seek handouts. Don't be the kind of person that requires others to take care of you. Try to earn it yourself. Labor for payment. You want to work to get paid for it? That's profit. We'll talk a lot more about profit later on, but you, you want to be bringing in income. Have people eat their own bread. That is, you have personal property that you can use. One more verse that I want to look at before we start expanding our principles here. Ephesians 4, 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who need, has need. So this is that uh, passage where there's a lot of put off this and put on that. Uh, put off harsh speech, put on loving kindness and that kind of thing. The put off is don't steal. If you have been a thief and you come to Christ, you put that off. But if you just try to stop bad things, so often we gravitate back toward them unless we put on good things. And the thing to put on instead of stealing is working, labor, performing with your own hands. And here he has another incentive so you can share. So you have more than enough for yourself and you can share with those who are on hard times. You think about Paul himself going around the churches raising money for the church in Jerusalem because they had need. Because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, after the resurrection of Christ, started really clamping down on Christians and they lost their jobs and they lost their livelihoods and they had to to leave their homes. And so Paul there is saying, hey, our brothers in Jerusalem, 
they're in a bad way. Let's all pull together our money. I'll come to your church and you, you collect it, give it to me and I'll take it or I'll send it with someone to Jerusalem because they have a need. But outside of those kinds of situations, you need to make enough, you want to make enough, at least that's your goal, so that you can share it with those who have need. All right, so I'm going to add one more line here. You have something to share, produce enough wealth so you can be generous with others. So those are the kind of things that are implied in, this, in these two texts. All right, so that gives us an opportunity now to come back to the subject itself, economics. How do we define economics? What is economics? If we had time, I'd love to hear the different uh, definitions that we all might have, because there's a bunch of different ones out there. Uh, the one I like to use is the one by Thomas Sowell. You've heard me refer, about, refer to Thomas Sowell several times in this series. And he borrows this from somebody else. I'm not sure exactly who. But he says economics is the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses. And you're all like, finally, we got to something enjoyable, right? Finally got something good. I, I, lo I live for those kind of definitions. Yeah, I know, it's kind of boring, but just stay with me here. The study of use of scarce resources. Think about all the resources we have in life, and they're not limitless. Everything has some limit. Eh, maybe air. We might think we have unlimited air, but think about it. Uh, let, let's, let's get very practical here. Time. Time is a resource. You only have so much of it. At the food truck Friday, Brandon gave us a great illustration. He had a, a line, a wire going out, and it was just dark enough so it would fit his, his application. You couldn't see either end of it. Now, I'm assuming it had an end, right, Brandon? Yeah. But they had this, this wire out there, and you could see it as far that way and that way as you could look. It was extending. And then he had a little piece of tape on it. And he was using that to say to all of us as men, you know, we're on this, this line, this, this uh, infinite uh, 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 what's the word? Eterna eternality. Time goes on and on both directions, but you have just this little sliver of it. And, and the piece of tape was about an inch thick, and he said, that's way too generous for the proportion of time you have on this earth. It's a good illustration. Our time is limited. You're only here for a while. And the time you have, what economists call the opportunity cost, if you spend your time on this, you're not spending it on that. If you watched a football game yesterday for three hours, that was three hours you weren't spending fixing the leaky faucet. And if you spent three hours fixing the leaky faucet, you're not praying and reading the Bible. And if you're spending three hours praying and reading the Bible, you're not spending that time with your family necessarily. So whatever you use time for, it's gone. You can't use that time for something else. Well, that's true of all resources. If you use the steel you have, if you're a steel worker and you use that to, to make a big building, you're not using that steel for some other kind of structure. All of our resources are scarce in economics studies. How do we allocate, as a society, how do we allocate all those resources? This is not that far from the biblical idea of economics. Economics is actually in the Bible. It's not usually translated that way, but it comes from two Greek words put together. One is oikos, that's the echo part. Oikos means house or household. Nomos, the nomics comes from nomos, which means law. Economics originally was house law, and we, we tend to think of stewardship, because that's the idea a a, a the father, the patriarch of the home, 
would go off to do his business, and he would leave the household in charge of the steward, the oikonomos. And that person's responsibility was to make sure the household was being productive, that it was run well. We don't think so much like that in our day. I, re I read a book earlier this summer where a guy was making the point that the home has become pretty much just the center of recreation in our day. Think about that. What do you do as a family? What do you do in your homes? Lots of recreation, hanging out, rest, sleep, that kind of thing. But our homes are not the centers of productivity like they were for most of human history. Right? You, you had to raise animals, you had to raise crops, you, you, you had all-in family work to produce things. That's how most of human history has been. And if, if the, the, the father had other business to do, somebody had to make sure this family keeps pressing on. So the, the head of the economy, the oikonomos, he, his job, the steward, would make, make sure that the, the, the corn got planted when it was time and the cows got milked and everybody did their chores, their jobs, all those kind of things. So he had to make sure that resources in the household were allocated well, that they were used well. So let's bring this a little closer to home as Christians. We are all stewards. It's a common term in, in Christianity. We're all stewards of what? Of what Jesus owns. He's the owner. And he even tells a parable like this. The, the owner goes off to do his thing and he leaves his, his farm or his estate in the hands of others. That's us. Well, what does Jesus own? Hebrews 1 tells us he owns everything. He's been appointed the heir of all things. He inherits the entire world. So Jesus says after the resurrection, this universe is mine, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and now I'm entrusting it to my disciples. And now, in particular, he says, I'm telling you to disciple the nations. Go into all the world and preach the good news. That's what we think of as the church. When we think of a stewardship, we think about even raising money primarily to get the gospel out, and we should. That's good. And that's our job. Jesus came and died and rose again so that sinners can be forgiven. And that's the central message that we have. It's what we call the what? The Great Commission. You may not be able to see that. It's not because I have bad handwriting. It's just a, a dull uh, color. That's the Great Commission. That's, that's the, what drives us. But notice what Jesus did not do. He didn't say, now I'm undoing the previous command, the first commission that was given to mankind was rule and subdue the earth. Take charge of this earth. That's the first one. Well, Jesus brings them both together. Go and preach the good news, bringing converts, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, teach them all that I've commanded you. Well, what's included in that all that I've commanded you? Work. Work. For a living. Earn a paycheck. That's part of it. So let's bring this full circle. Paul is the one who gave the, uh, the instruction there to the Thessalonians to work and not grow weary. Let's talk about Paul, the tent maker. You know that from Acts chapter 18 probably. Paul was apparently a skilled tent maker. Now there, there is a movement among scholars, and they're making a pretty powerful case that tent making is not exactly what the word means, but more of a, what we would call a stagehand in the public theater. 
Maybe, but for now, we're going we're gonna to stick with the traditional that he was a tent maker. So Paul here is in Thessalonica, and he says, I'm going to work hard day and night so you don't have to give me food, and I can make tents, so that's what I'm going to do. So how does he go about doing that? Well, he has to buy supplies, right? He's got to buy the cloth, whatever material he's using. He's got to buy the, the, the posts. He's got to buy the, the pegs, maybe some, some ropes. So he's got to buy all the materials, supplies that it takes to make tents. As he does that, as he makes a tent, then he tries to sell the tent. So let's say he has $100 and he spends $100 buying the materials, the supplies to make a tent to sell. And he goes out and he says, hey, would you all, would you like to buy my tent? And someone says, well, I'm interested, how much? And he says, $100. Are you tracking with me? How much did it cost to make the tent? $100. I'll sell it to you for $100. Any problem with that? Yeah, he's not any better off than he started, right? Except he's out of all that time that he spent making the tent. No, his job is he wants to make a profit. That's good and right that he makes a profit. He needs to sell it for more than it costs him. Otherwise, after he sells it for $100, he goes back to the church gathering and says, I'm really hungry and I don't have any money to buy bread because I didn't make any money in sales, so could you feed me? It doesn't work. Now let's say Paul is not only a pretty industrious man, but he's, he's got this friend named Barney. And Barney is a great encourager. He's a great uh, teacher of the word of God, but he's not very useful in the marketplace. But Paul says, you know, I think I can teach Barney how to do some of the construction of these tents. So Barney comes to town and says, hey, so that you're not a burden to the Thessalonians, I'm going to teach you how to sew some of these things together and carve some of these pegs, and I'm going to pay you $10 an hour. That's great. Now, Barney is not a burden upon the church. Paul's not a burden upon the church, and now he's got more people working, so he can probably make more tents in a shorter amount of time and increase his profit. So, Barney is on the team. And then his other buddy, Tim, shows up. And Tim also is a great teacher, and he's, he's this young protege that has a lot of potential. But he's not very good as a craftsman either, but Paul's like, well, I think I can teach him this. So he hires Tim also at $10 an hour. So now Paul has this little business where he's not a burden to the church. Barney is not a burden to the church. Tim is not a burden to the church. He's making more tents. Great, because he's got some trips coming up. And he doesn't want to be a greater burden than anybody else, so he's got to make more profits so he has money to buy those, those tickets for the boats so he can go to Crete, wherever he needs to go next. That all sounds great. That sounds like what we call capitalism and free markets, because it is. That's exactly it. Now, there are some principles that we've already seen, and I'm going to add a couple here, that, re that, that have to be true for us to have what is called free markets, and capitalism. But these are all biblical concepts. First of all, there is the concept, there must be the concept of private property. That's in, implicit in the he who steals, steal no longer. If you don't own anything, nobody can steal from you. Right? You, you get that? Pretty fundamental. 
If I don't own anything, you can't steal from me because there's nothing of mine to steal. It is a biblical concept that you own stuff. Private property is a biblical concept. Income, salary. Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. You are paid because you deserve to be paid. That's how it works. That's this world that God created. Owner-worker negotiation. If you remember in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable of a landowner who looked out and saw some guys sitting around doing nothing. They were unruly and undisciplined. And Jesus said, the landowner said, go to, said to a steward, go hire these men to work in my vineyard. And a few hours later, he saw some more guys out and he said, go hire them to work in the vineyard. And he went on through the day and finally at the 11th hour, there were still some people not working and, and he said, go, go hire them. So he went and hired them. And the whole point of the parable is the, the people who got hired at the 11th hour got the same reward, same payment as the first people. So that, that's his point. But implicit in that is this verse 2 where he says, when he had agreed upon, with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them to his vineyard. This idea that the, the owner and the employee, they negotiate for what is the wages. That's how it's supposed to work. And then rule of law. Again, that's just assumed. Peter says the king is to punish the, the evildoers. If I have private property and you can come steal it and there's no law enforcement, then business is hampered. If, there's no, uh, if, I, if I say I'll pay you these wages and I don't pay you these wages, then business can't operate. In, in many of the poor countries of the world where the the leaders, the authorities will take bribes and there's all this corruption, there's not thriving markets because of the corruption and evil. There has to be the rule of law, otherwise it won't work. All right, so let's go back now to our Apostle Paul, and he's got his little tent-making business, and he's hired Barney and Tim to help out, and then Caesar comes along and says, you know what, out of the compassion of my heart, I'm requiring all businesses to pay $15 an hour, minimum. Well, Paul does the, the, the numbers and he says, I can't afford to pay both Barney and Tim if I have to pay them $15 an hour. So he goes over to Tim and says, sorry, bud, you're out because I can't afford this. He does the numbers again and thinks, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can even afford to keep Barney on the payroll at this weight. And then he finds out there's another guy who got let go of another tent-making business, and he's really, really good, really exceptional. But because of the economics of all this, he had, to, he had to get fired. And so Paul's like, that guy I've heard, I've seen his production, he's way better than Barney or Tim. So I can make a lot more profit, which is good for the kingdom and good for, for what I'm doing in ministry, if I let Barney go, because this is not really his sweet spot. If I hire that guy, I can pump out way more tents and just have one employee of $15 an hour. So he lets Barney go and he hires that guy. Now we have Barney and Tim who are left unemployed because of this requirement by Caesar to pay a certain amount. Whenever the minimum wage stuff is presented, it's always presented under the name of compassion and mercy. It never leads to good things for the, the poor, for those who are not highly skilled laborers, it always affects them negatively because that's how it works. And the thing is, those on the left, those, the Marxists we've been talking about, 
they're okay with this. They're okay that it doesn't really help the poor. It fits their goals. Because what they're trying to do is destroy the Christian worldview. Actually, they're trying to ultimately destroy capitalism, and they see that the church is in the way, so they're trying to destroy us along the way. But they want all the money out of the hands of people and into the hands of the government. Remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. What will be the course of this revolution, turning things uh, away from, from, the, uh, the workers to, or from the business owners to the workers? We want a limitation of private property through progressive taxation, family inheritance taxes, abolition of inheritance. They get the money out of the hands of people. Uh, are out of the hands of the wealthy, rather, and into the, the government through taxation and such. And this one, uh, labor, employment of prole pro proletarians, pro proletarians, yes, I can say that, uh, abolish competition among the workers. They want to destroy that, so it all goes to the government. They want private property to be abolished, taken away from individuals. That's what they're after. So in summary, here's the, the Marxist leftist economics. Abolish private property, heavy progressive taxation, forced wage increases, eliminate free market, minimum wage, or what's sometimes called living wage. So let's bring this down. I'm just going to put two columns up here to compare God's word versus what Marxism and leftism is after. God's word says work for income. That's the goal. Work so that you have money coming in. Marxism says the government distributes wealth. Bring all the money to the government and they will distribute it as needed. You may remember the Marxist uh, mantra that Karl Marx said is from each according to his ability to each according to his need, which sounds really good if it worked that way, but who decides what people need? The government does. That's, that's the plan. That's the goal. God's word says, be self-sufficient. Now, not in the sense that you're not depending on, dependent on God. Of course you're dependent on God. But when it comes to everyone else, when it comes to the horizontal, when it comes to uh, working, strive to be self-sufficient so you're not dependent on others. There may be times when you have to depend on others. And again, that's why we take care of one another. But your goal should be, I make enough so that I don't have to receive from others. Marxism on the left says, the government will provide, will take care of you. Welfare is a leftist idea. That's the pursuit. You see what Marxism does here is because they don't believe God exists and they're trying to destroy Christianity, the government largely takes the place of God. Think about what's happened in our day just in the last few months. Most people in America, as soon as something like the COVID shutdown comes, there's great panic for most people. As I understand it, most Americans don't have $1,000 in their savings account. So when there's a hiccup in their income, they're in big trouble. Who's going to save them? Who's going to help them? Well, we passed one stimulus bill. And there's a whole lot of political fighting going on with the second one. Is that going to happen or is it not going to happen? We need the government to come save us. How about all the businesses? Lots of businesses don't have any money in the bank. They're over leveraged in debt. So this kind of shutdown comes and a lot of small and large businesses are, are in trouble. And the big ones are saying, we need money from the government. And the little ones are saying, we need money from the government. Where does the government get their money? From all the citizens. Government is not a business that makes any money. They take money, they don't make money. 
because people are not largely self-sufficient. God's word says profit is good. If you're in business, you should try to make a profit. It's not Christ-honoring business to not try to make a profit. Uh, if you're working for someone else, you should make more money than you spend. That's good, godly handling of money. Profit is good. Marxism says profit is evil. It's the source of all of our problems. If we could get rid of profit and the desire for profit, then things would be a lot better. God's word says you should have personal property and you are responsible for it. It's your stuff. You're going to give an account for what you have. Be a good steward of it. Marxism says, nope, the government should own all the property and distribute it as they see fit. Let's get it out of the hands of individuals to the government. God's word says, increase your wealth so you can be generous. Now, of course, there are all kinds of warnings in the scripture about greed, about trying to become rich for the sake of being rich. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All of that is certainly true, but let's not flip the other way and think that pursuing wealth is inherently evil. It's not. How can you give to others if you don't have something to give? Wealth, for the sake of being generous, that's a good and godly idea. The left says government will take care of the poor. The government incentivizes poor people's dependence on them takes the money from everyone else and does that. Now, I've, I've labeled this Marxism, leftism, because the leftists are very upfront about their agenda. This is what they want. It's in the platform. It's in all, it, it, they're, they're, they admit this out, out loud. But this really is a bipartisan train wreck because the right is almost as guilty as the left in a lot of ways. This has permeated our political thinking in our nation for a long time, where the government wants to be God. The government wants to take over everything. So don't just think if you vote straight conservative, somehow you're eliminating all this. That's, that's not true. Who we vote for matters. Who's making these decisions matter. Which leads us to application, what, what we've been talking about through this whole series. What do we do here? Well, number one, vote. In a couple of weeks, vote and know who you're voting for. And this is, can't be just an every four-year thing, and it's not just a federal thing. Know who we're voting for at every level, local, state, and on up. And, and seek out people who are not trying to create the, the right side of this column. They know the government's not God. They want you to be responsible for what you have so that all those things on the left side of the column can be true. So voting matters. Secondly, live like the left side of the column. Work, that's the command from 2 Thessalonians, work. Work, earn income. Have some stuff so that you can give away some stuff. Find different ways. We, uh, we so often put money and wealth in this unspiritual category. God doesn't. This is all of life, this is everyday life. You know, we come in here and most often, talk about the gospel. Most often talk about, you know, we expound, walk through big texts of scripture and that kind of thing. And we talk about character and Christian character and the Great Commission, and, and we should and we will get back to that and all of those things. But it's easy to look at this kind of thing and think, ugh, 
that's just so worldly. It's not worldly. It's Christian. Christ has designed a world in which what we call capitalism, free markets, that is the world he made, and he wants us to expand civilization, that rule and subdue, as we expand his kingdom, and as we expand his kingdom to bring people back to the original mandate to expand culture and civilization and build wealth and grow in technology and progress in all of these things. Think about just one industry. Think about the health industry. How many people in this room or people close to you would have been dead 100 years ago if technology, medical technology was where it was then, if it, if it was now where it was then? I mean, how many women survived breast cancer 100 years ago versus the number of women that can receive treatment and live a normal life afterward? And that's just one example. We're thankful for that. And a lot of that is driven, not just because people are seeking medical science advancement, but it also is driven by trying to make a profit. That's okay. It all goes hand in hand together. This matters. We shouldn't keep electing people that are gonna drive us further toward the government ruling over everything and being our provider. It's idolatry to look at the government as our provider, as our caretaker, as the, the, the people we are so dependent on. No, God is those things. So we need to move that direction. Well, for those of you who endured this, thanks for indulging me. But I pray you'll give it some thought and realize this is all over the scripture. Wealth, productivity, economics, stewardship, it's all over the scripture. Our whole life is to be stewarded for Christ's sake. And I hope you'll give this some thought about how you think through these things. Let's pray. Lord, I know as I've talked with people about these things recently and over the years, uh, we are easily led into a kind of a pacifism or a, um, a pessimism. Um, just don't want to bother or just kind of get swept along with cultural influence on these things. Lord, may we as the church uh, know your word and know your principles, be stronger on these things, and, and may we make a difference in our voting and in our lives. May we, may we show others our zeal to work hard, our ambition to work hard, to, to grow our own personal wealth, not, not so we can build up our own barns and and storehouses, you, you tell us, store up treasures in heaven. But so we can be generous, so we, that we can take care of those who are in need. So that we can work to expand the kingdom and also expand uh, the culture and civilization as you originally commanded. Lord, you have blessed us, 21st century America. You've blessed us like almost no people before. We are stewards of that blessing. And may we... Use these gifts for your glory and for your good and, and not make an extreme distinction between sacred and secular, but see all of life as sacred and uh, pursue to serve you with our time and our resources. Father, I pray for this church. I pray that you uh, would raise up more wealth in this church, that we can use it to plant more campuses and fill the city of Colorado Springs with 
gospel-preaching, Christ-centered churches, uh, that we can expand our ministry in a variety of ways, that we can have a greater impact on the, the political landscape here as well. Lord, would you do that? Would you put it on our hearts to, to build our own wealth and give generously to those things? Father, for what you've already given, may we be good stewards of that as a, as a body. Uh, Father, today we pray for the Volstads. Uh, we're thankful to be able to partner with them to give as you've given to us to support their ministry so that they can be free full-time to work uh, in a foreign land. Would you bless them? Would you increase their, their wealth, but especially increase their success as proclaimers of the gospel? Uh, and, and Lord, report back to us. Let us know what you're doing so that we may give you thanks appropriately. Father, we love you. We are dependent upon you. We are not ultimately self-sufficient. Every work, every dollar we earn, every, everything we own is from you, our Heavenly Father. We give you thanks for it. And uh, Lord, may we be vocal about that to all who know us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been asked if uh, the slides will be available. And yes, they'll be alongside on the website, uh, alongside the uh, sermon, right? on the Understanding the Times page, so feel free to jump on there if you want to get a copy of those slides. All right, questions. Do you think that we can ever lower minimum wage? Yeah, vote the right people in. I mean, that's, that's the decision of lawmakers. Now, are you asking me, do I think it'll ever happen? No, but uh, it is certainly is possible because lawmakers are the ones who do that, right? So, yeah, I think it matters who we vote, yeah. Right. Yeah, the... the Reducing it to a lower level doesn't really accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so the statement is uh, just reducing it would not actually accomplish what we want. That's true, but lower is still better than higher. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a legal process. So our voting matters, certainly. How does retirement function in all this since you stop working? Is retirement even good? Um, I don't like retirement if you mean by that I just get, around, get to travel around, play golf, and get my RV and that kind of thing. I don't think that's a biblical concept. What's that? <laughs> um, there is coming a point for all of us when we will be largely unemployable in our culture. That's the reality. So you do need to prepare for that day. That's why it's important to start saving young, investing young, compound interest is your friend. Uh, and you need to talk to the right people if you don't know anything about that. But it is important to be prepared for that day when uh, they say, Doug, you're too old to be a preacher in this church. Uh, we're gonna set you out to pastor <laughs> and, uh, and we're gonna bring somebody else in. So, uh, wait, did I get all that one? Anyway, so, um, how does retirement function all this since you stopped working is probably any good. So uh, it's not really even a choice, I guess is my point. So you need to prepare for that time. And you can build wealth even in retirement if you invest well early on. And you should do that. And then even if you're not working full-time at what you used to do, you know, look for opportunities to, to still work and have some income. 
But that's the reality of where we're at in, in our culture. Um, so you should always be pursuing having enough to care for yourself later on. That's, that's what I believe. Um, that's kind of wrapped up in that idea of having something to hand off to your kids. Now, if you spend it all before you die because you outlive what you planned, then, then fine. But uh, there is this idea of storing up for uh, future generations. Is, is that any, anybody want to follow up on that? I don't know if that question came from anybody in here or not. Okay. Uh, modern healthcare is wonderful, also terribly expensive. Should the government have any say in regulating prices? Ooh. That's a great question. Um, The seven libertarian bones on my body want to say no, government should get out of it completely. However, because it does cross over in some areas into public health uh, to have some government involvement, I'm not sure. I'm opposed to that entirely. But like everything else the government does, when they control it, it is extremely inefficient, inefficient and very, very expensive. So there has to be ways to do it better and cheaper. Um, so should the government be involved? Uh, yeah, I mean, ideally, in an ideal world, I guess I would say no. I'm not sure that's even possible, but I would sure like to see the government back way off in a lot of things. Brandon, did you have something? I have a question, but I'll just comment on that. Okay. Yes, and the so the statement is, uh, Competition free market drives better healthcare, which the more regulations from the government, the less free that market is. And then you've got a, the whole question about insurance companies and lobbyists and big pharma and all that. That's all real. I mean, start looking at the money that is spent on all of those things. It, it, it's just, it's crazy. And we are blind to most of it. We don't see most of it. And we just buy into the system and go through the system. And you think, man, if we could take all of that money that's on that and put it to real healthcare, things would be crazy better. What do you do with people who cannot work, disabilities or unqualified, and can't find someone to hire them? Um, so if, if there's true disability, then yeah, that's where we help, right? That, that there is a place for that. Again, I think the government being the primary helper here, it's inefficient and expensive. But because the government does do that, then uh, the church doesn't have as much of an open door. But we certainly, our mindset as Christian is we don't want anybody to go hungry. And if they physically cannot work, then we got to take care of them somehow. Um, what was the second part of that? You're moving awfully fast. You must have lunch plans. Uh, if you're unqualified, then that's, that's where we got to start. How do I get qualified for something? And surely there's something you can do to make some money while you're working toward qualification. Uh, we, we have it easy in this sense. You know, Paul used the word labored hardship. We think eight hours a day with an hour lunch and two 15-minute coffee breaks and a smoke break in there. We, we like, oh, it's been such a long, hard day. We don't know anything about hard days compared to past generations. And a two-day weekend, you realize that's relatively new in the history of mankind. Remember, even in the Old Covenant, six days thou shalt work, and one day you shall rest. And we complain because our weekends are too short and our work days are too long. 
We need to remember hard work, laborious work is a biblical concept, and we've become very weak as a society. So to work eight hours somewhere to make some money and then spend two or three hours getting trained and qualified so you can expand your, your abilities to get a better job, that's a very godly pursuit, and it's a good thing to do. All right, Brandon, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, Brandon works for ministry. I work for ministry. Uh, what's, the, what's the heart of the question again? Why should we be paid by the ministry? Yeah, good question. So Paul didn't always work that hard, right? Um, he did it as an example, as he says, and for whatever the circumstances were in Thessalonica, he didn't want to burden them. He didn't mind burden, burdening other churches, right? He worked for years on the dime of other churches. Um, he had another reason. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he makes this fascinating statement, we don't have time to get into it now, but he makes this fascinating statement that he says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Right, are you familiar with that? And sometimes missionaries, pastors, we use that, I'm compelled to. No, no, he, that's, he does not mean like what I would mean. If I said that, it's like, I, you know, I can't do anything else. That's not what Paul means. Paul means literally Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and hit me upside the head of the two-by-four and said, you must go preach the gospel. Paul did not enter ministry by choice. He was required by Jesus to be a, a, an evangelist. So that's what he means. Quite literally, he's compelled. He wasn't doing it freely. So he says, is there anything I can do to show gratitude to my Savior? Yes, I can do this without pay. That's the one thing I can do because I have no choice but to be a missionary. But if I do it without being paid, that's just a gift, a love offering to the Lord. Pretty cool passage. But he didn't do that all the time. He did take money on several occasions. So uh, the, the answer to your question is, Jesus has set up so that teaching elders uh, are supported and missionaries are supported by the church. That's very clear in, in the scripture. Uh, nonprofit or parachurch ministries, you know, I don't know, uh, you know where we go there. So you're on your own, man. But the justification for missionaries and pastors for sure is in the scripture very, very clearly. Yeah, Phil?
Yeah, exactly. Uh, the comment is right in the text that I read from Second Thessalonians. He says we have a right to this. And he does that elsewhere. In Corinth, when, he's, when he works as a tent maker for a while, when Timothy shows up and it's time to get back to full-time ministry, he actually stops working and gets to full-time ministry. And presumably then he has to be supported because he probably didn't make enough money selling tents to us. Uh, pay for his bills for long term. So absolutely. It is a right in the scripture. It's the labor is worthy of his wages. Paul quotes that from the lips of Jesus and is in the context of gospel ministry. Yeah, great, great point. How is the stock market different from gambling? Well, for some people it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good question. And I won't spend a ton of time here because it's a you have to dive in a little bit. But uh, gambling is based purely on luck, right? I'm going to bet that this card will turn over and be the right color or the right number, or I'm going to bet that the, the little ball, ball will fall in the right spot, that kind of pure luck. Uh, the stock market is actually investing in companies. It's not based on luck. Yes, we don't know the future, but if you do your homework and find companies that are uh, as far as we can tell, going to be successful and they're going to grow. And you look at things like their uh, debt ratio and those kind of things and realize, okay, when COVID hits, they're not going to go under uh, and that kind of thing. And they have good products. They're going to be able to make an increased profit over time. That's a good investment. Is it absolutely secure? Of course not. Nothing is, right? But it's not based on luck unless you just throw a dart and say, all right, I'm going to put some money over there because I like the sound of their name, right? Or I like the color of their logo or something. Oh, that, that might be closer to gambling. But uh, if you dive into what investing is, you know, they, 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 we use the phrase playing the stock market. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about investing in companies where there's a really good chance that uh, you will get a good return on your income. If anybody has a 401k or a Roth IRA or any of those mechanisms, you are in the stock market. Uh, I've had people say, oh, I don't, I don't do stocks because it's just too, too speculative. Say, oh, do you have a retirement account? Do you have a 401k? Yeah. Guess what? <laughs> You're invested in stocks. Yeah, Jordan. Sports gambling is more like investing? Because <laughs> you root against the Eagles and you were like, I'm guaranteed to win? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Remind me not to ask him for investment advice. Marxist ideologies and its acceptance have progressed at a rapid rate over the last decade. It is inevitable, is it inevitable that these ideologies will eventually take over? No, it's not inevitable. Because Jesus is king. And I believe he can change the course of our nation. And I'm praying for that. I hope you're praying for it. And then we've got to do our part. But what if, what if, I'm, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I do work for two nonprofits. But what if all that's happening right now, uh, the, the extreme leftism, Marxism that we see, is to get the attention of people who should know better. Real change is possible. Absolutely real change is possible. I am a very optimistic the kingdom of Jesus and the increase of it will know no end. Isaiah 9, it's right out of the Bible. 
I think Jesus' kingdom is going to grow, and as his kingdom grows, economics gets better. Now, is that going to happen in the West? Maybe not. Maybe God is judging America and he's going to smack us down, but China, which right now seems like the epitome of Marxism, maybe China will have a, a research, they'll, they'll change dramatically and over the next hundred years, they become a thriving Christ-centered economy. It's possible. Or maybe God is not actually destroying America right now. Maybe he is weeding out and pruning. That's my hope. That's my prayer. It is absolutely possible. It's also possible that we're under judgment and he's going to crush us. But we'll see. I'll let you know in 100 years. Doesn't Jesus support taxes? Yep, absolutely. Doesn't government have authority to spend that money at their discretion? Um, well, are we asking, do they have the authority before God? I would say no. Uh, God has laid out the charter for government, and it doesn't say anything about the government being responsible for the education of our children. That prerogative belongs to parents. So as soon as the government comes along and says, we are going to educate your children, and we are going to compel you, coerce you, to let us educate your children, now we have a conflict. And again, we, we, we see the government stuff... I made reference to this some weeks ago, but when I love what's happening from the current administration for the potential of more school choice. That's really good. But even better, we don't tax you to the level we're taxing you, and you be responsible for the education of your children. Talk about competition. The kinds of schools that we could create if the government got out of it, and we could use all that money to decide how we're gonna educate our kids, it'd be off the charts good. Competition's gonna drive that better as well. So, yes, the first question, yes, we are, we are commanded to pay taxes. We are to give to those who are due taxes, right out of Romans 13. But the question is, how far can Caesar go before he oversteps the charter given to him by Christ? Should he continue to tax people to do all of those things, and I would argue, no. Any, any questions or pushback on that? Okay. Other than government intervention, how do you keep greed and extorting capitalism accountable? Uh, well, for Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. We have teaching. We have um, our own conscience where we should be examining ourselves regularly and uh, have people around us who will help us uh, check that. As far as unbelievers, um, I'm not sure the government actually does much of anything to keep greed and uh, capitalism accountable. At least right now it's not. Um, in fact, it's pushing everything the other way, trying to reduce the impact of capitalism. So I don't, the government is not uh, great at greed. I mean, it's really good at having greed. It's not very good at stopping greed. What sorts of aspects of capitalism should government regulate? Anti-monopoly laws seem good. So do some FDA. Yeah, that's, that's part of that, all that complexity I was talking about. Those are big questions and take some time. Um, I mean, in general, I'm a, a low-regulation guy. But to the degree that the government does need to watch out, so, uh, simply put, um, if there's nobody overseeing drugs, medicine, I have to qualify. There's nobody overseeing the medication, and just anybody can create a pill and say, here, this will fix you. Uh, to not have anybody that, that uh, 
regulating that, there's problems. However, could the government play a different kind of role and say, okay, if you get caught selling a medication that is harmful, we will punish you. Would that be enough of a deterrent? Um, is that their role? So one way or the other, yes, the government is to make sure that people are not selling medicine that's going to hurt people. But the kinds of regulations that start out, okay, we're going to develop these standards and you have to make sure they meet these standards. That sounds good and probably is good at first, but 20 years later, the piles of regulations on top of that means that pill that should cost you a, a nickel is now costing 10 bucks. So, yeah, I, I'm not against all regulation, and I see the government, again, having the responsibility to protect its citizens. How it accomplishes that is, is where the real rub is. Yes? Yeah, so the comment is uh, the free market capitalism, uh, the market itself keeps greed somewhat in check because if you try to make too much money on it, then people are just going to stop buying your stuff. Absolutely. On the regulation side, however, um, I mentioned this, I think, a few weeks ago. If the government did not regulate airplanes, right? So you build an airplane and you say, hey, for 20 bucks, I'll take you on a flight. Well, you will learn if that guy had no business making airplanes, but you may pay for it with your life. So is it the proper place for the government to come and say, you know what, unless your airplane meets these standards, we're not going to let you fly? Uh, I can get on board with that. But all this stuff is subjective. All this is part of the, the debate and the discussion. And we know the gravitational pull on government when they do this, pretty soon they want to do more of that and more of that and more of that. So it, it, it's, it's pretty hard. But yes, as far as just capitalism and greed, that's absolutely true. As a Christian, is it wrong to invest in large companies that are heavily influenced by the government? Yeah, that, that's a hard one. Um, I wouldn't say for that reason. Um, I wouldn't say just because they're influenced by the government. Um, it's harder when you look at what some of these companies are all about. It's harder to say, is it, can I good conscience vote for it? But if you start going down that path, you won't vote for any, you won't invest in anybody because there's hardly any companies that aren't doing some things that you think, uh, I don't want to be associated with that. So I, I would, in my, it seems to me it's not wrong to invest in uh, Google and Facebook at face value. Um, I don't know why. What would, what would cause you to say it's wrong? I'm, I'm asking. I'm kind of thinking out loud here. What, what are some of the things you think? Nope, I, I could not invest in that company. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the statement is, uh, is, is it along the same lines as boycotting Starbucks because they are pro-gay marriage? The challenge there is, again, if you're going to say that, then you've got to dive into every company you invest in and know everything that they are about, and you're not going to find very many companies that you would be confident investing in. And then for me, biblically, there's another side of this. If Paul says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, when everybody knows it was sacrificed to idols, nobody's hiding that. The, the idol market is making a living based on selling this after they just offered it to Zeus, then surely I can invest in a company that's also involved in 
idolatrous and wicked things um, and use that money for the glory of God. So that, that's where my conscience goes anyway. Yeah, Brandon? Yeah, which introduces a whole another level of questions because we have such little control, at least I do, I have such little control on the investment options in, in my 403B. Um, so who knows? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at every line item of every company that's invested there. And uh, yeah, maybe I should. Yeah. How can we continue to shape the free market system when it is often controlled by non-Christians who do not pursue ethical business practices? Um, how do we continue? Yeah, well, again, voting uh, as far as the government side, um, yeah, that's tough. That's part of where we're at. And changing the culture, um, uh, that, that, that's part of it. There, there's only so much we can do, and we pray a lot because God can do whatever he wants, and he can change some of that. Uh, but that's, I would say, all these things we've been talking about is part of the solution. Uh, the church, broadly speaking, is a powerful entity in the U.S. And if the church were to really get serious about these things, we have a lot of weight to throw around in controlling some of these things. Um, but that's, it's not going to happen easily and overnight, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. B-R-I. So Brandon is talking about B-R-I Institute as a good guide for investment possibilities. B-R-I Institute. You mentioned being dependent on the church, so are you okay with church welfare, just not government welfare? Um, well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it welfare, but uh, we are told to take care of those in need for sure. Um, there's, in, in uh, First Timothy, there is specifically a place for widows in that culture to be full-time supported by the church. But there are requirements. And again, this sounds so harsh, but Paul says if she did not live a life that was basically pleasing to the Lord, then you don't support her. Imagine that. Or if she's too young. Ladies, if you're under 60, Paul calls you young. And under 60, you're going to want to get married again. So don't put them on the list. But if they're over 60 and they've lived a godly life, then the church, he says, should support them. Well, we're kind of robbed of that opportunity in our day because government or insurance or well, uh, Medicare, or some, you know, those kind of things take care of it. So the church doesn't get to do that. Um, so yeah, there are certain circumstances where the church should take care of somebody, even for the long haul. Uh, but for the short term, when there's not permanent disability, so to speak, then we can support for a while, but say, hey, we need to help you get trained and qualified so you can get a job. One more. Whoa. Are there any limits a business owner should have in pursuit of profit? Uh, no. 
Um, as one example, labor is one of the largest expenses for many businesses. Should wages or number of employees be reduced whenever it's considered a good strategy for increasing profit? Sure. Yes? Should the well-being of employees be only le uh, left to business owners, or is there a place for government in this? Yeah, I think the government should stay out of this. Um, when I agree to work for a company for this much and they agree to pay me that much, that's between me and the business owner and the government should stay out of that. It's not the government's responsibility to make sure that I have a certain living wage. Uh, and if I don't like this scenario, then I got to do the hard work to find something else. Now, certainly profits for a company, a business owner, that kind of thing can tempt to greed, absolutely. But for just try, striving to make as much profit as you legally can, I don't see a biblical problem with that. Now, if you're a Christian and you are intentionally putting the screws to your employees and stuff, we've got other things to talk about for sure. But just in general, the concept of maximizing your profit, I think that is a biblical concept. Um, and and you've you got to realize the employee-employee relationship is not a friendship. It's not a family relationship. And this, talk about hard, talk, church ministry, right? And parachurch ministry. Like, we're brothers and sisters here. Yeah, but you're an organization. Where's that line? I, that's where it really gets hard. How do you let people go who are not doing a great job, but now you're going to look bad as a Christian, but you hired them not to be a nice person, but so they would get a job done. And before the Lord, if they're not getting the job done, then they shouldn't stay employed. That, that, that's not honoring the Lord either, but these principles matter. Uh, let me, let me step outside to Christian for a minute. So Jeff Bezos got a lot of bad press after his, portfolio, his worth went up, I don't know, was it $40 billion over COVID or whatever? And you hear greedy, greedy, nasty, evil Jeff Bezos. Uh, okay, I, I'm sure he's an evil man in a lot of ways. I mean, look at his marriage, right? Look at, look at some of that. But is the fact that he created a, a business that served all of us very well over COVID. The one place you could go to get toilet paper. Well, until you couldn't, right? Uh, and the fact that you can buy stuff on Amazon cheaper than you can buy anywhere else, even Walmart sometimes. Is he a jerk because he makes your life better? No. Is he awful and evil because of, at least what I hear, is he's paying his workers so little. How do you make that case? No one is compelling those workers to work there. That's their free choice. Now, I don't know all the inner workings. Maybe there is some awful things going on there. But objectively, it's not Bezos' fault that he has people lining up to work for him. And so that brings the amount that he has to pay them down. And he says, I'm going to pay you $13 an hour. And they don't like it. And it's horrible working conditions. Well, you have the freedom to quit and go find another job. But I can't find another job that pays this. Well, then that's, that's, that's where you're at. But it doesn't mean that Jeff is a big, bad meanie. That's a technical economic term. Um, we've been told that there's those big, corporate, greedy people. Walmart, you know, they go in and they shut down the small business. That is how free market works. Now, the monopoly question, that's a different question. That, that, that gets into deeper areas that I'm sure we could have lots of conversation about. Is there any sense in which monopolies are unjust? 
I, I know the argument there, and I can, I can see that argument, but uh, just because someone has a great business idea and becomes the richest man in the world does not mean he's inherently greedy or evil. He might just be a good businessman. I would love for one of you to be Jeff Bezos because I have plans for your money, for the kingdom of God. Is that it? All right, anything else here from the, from the room? Yes. Yeah, good question. Uh, so part one is, uh, has the government taken over welfare kinds of needs because the church has failed? Maybe, and you're right, historically the church has, has largely, even things like orphanages and caring for the, uh, the people who lose their jobs and, and catastrophes and all that, the church has been the leader in that. One question is, is it true that the church has failed or is it the ideology has worked its way in, right? If Marxism has pushed this, which they have for 150 years, and they have intentionally supplanted the church in that, where, uh, and kind of leading to your second question, can the church get back there? That's a harder question for me, it seems. Um, I, I, I appreciate the sentiment. As inefficient and bad as the system is, maybe with the government taking over that, if all of you know, our taxes are going to care for that person and now the church spends more money to care for that person, is that the best use of money? So we're paying at least double, if not triple, to take care of the same need. Or do we let the government do it and try to change the system so the church gets back to it? I, I don't know. I would, I would say uh, probably a case-by-case case is the right way. Our, our heart definitely needs to be able to help. But think about the widow situation. If... Uh, if, if their husband dies and, and the, the gal has, uh, you know, he had good life insurance and, and all that, and now that's t she is taken care of, for us then to say, no, 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 we're not going to let that take care of you. we got to take care of you. Well, uh, she doesn't have the need there. So I, I, I guess I would put those two together and say, I'm not sure it was the, cover, the, the church abdicating our responsibility originally more than um, the, the, the system jumping in. So it's a good question. What we can't do is just turn a blind eye to someone in need and say, oh, the government will take care of them. We certainly can't have that attitude. Yeah, Connor. Yeah, it's a good question. So it's along the lines of uh, what about these me mega companies that are 
um, as he put it, sweatshops, kids uh, overseas, that kind of thing. Again, that's part of the complexity of all this and the government intruding so much. Um, so part of the reason that companies found it cheaper to send their labor overseas is because the, of the excessive taxation here. Um, that's what the current administration has been trying to overturn that. And they're putting heavy tariffs on and saying we want to get those, those factories back here in the U.S., which I like that. I think that's good, which would be one solution to that problem. Uh, whether ethically you can support and buy, you know, buy Nike products if you, if you know that they're employing that overseas, you know, that's a decision you have to make. I would say our government, their government, the corporations, the corporation is just trying to make, maximize their profit and to say to uh, business owners, hey, uh, you can legally do this, but you should do it this way, even though it's going to cost you a lot of money. That's certainly not how the world works. That's never going to happen. But we can maybe mitigate that by lowering corporate taxes here. Uh, if that government would raise their standards there, that would help too. So it's not just evil, greedy, corporate mentality is what I'm saying. There's a lot of factors playing into that uh, idea. Go ahead. Uh, they're evil, why? So what if those kids, this is the only income their family is getting? It's not ideal. It's not what you would want your kids to do. But if they're making $6 an hour there and they couldn't find any job anywhere in their family, dad can't get a job, mom can't get a job, there's that piece of it as well. So it seems evil to us. And again, I'm not, I've not been there. I haven't washed it firsthand. So the sweatshops may be repulsive in every possible way. Or it may be that propaganda plays into this as well, and I don't trust everything I, I see from the media. So I don't know, but we at least have to ask that question as well. If that's the only income this family is getting, that, that needs to be factored into the discussion. That's a good question. Yeah, and is that a good thing? Why, why not? Why can't I, my kids work and work hard when they're 13? Uh, used to be... Kids worked real hard, and it wasn't considered unethical, but now we've uh, changed the standards. Um, I'm not sure that's always good. Yeah, Jordan. I agree wholeheartedly with your principle, right. right? So yes, if there's true evil being done, then the government's job is to protect its citizens, right? Um, yeah, and that's a good question too. So what is, is the United States responsible to not allow Nike 
to use those overseas factories. This gets, gets really fuzzy, and we are having this discussion based on the reporting of things that we've never seen firsthand. So that, again, that factors into it. So in principle, I'm with you. In application, you know, you got to show me, got to, got to prove it, and that kind of thing. And then, you, yeah, which government's in charge there, and all that. It, this is the stuff is hard. That's why I said at the beginning, this is complex. There's a, this is way bigger than, you know, one sermon, one. Yeah, Joanna. So define exploitation. I do. That word, though, that's a loaded word, exploitation. And, and that, again, how, who decides what they're worth? That's where the whole leftist idea is, and Marx taught this. Uh, he separated, he didn't like negotiation between the owner and the worker. He said humanity is dehumanized when the worker works more than necessary to provide for himself. So if I work three hours a day, and by working three hours a day, I take care of my own needs, everything after that is exploitation by the harsh, mean, cruel master. And that's just simply not true. You can't make that that there's, there's no way to prove that point. In reality, and this is biblical, I, I read it earlier, it's between the landowner and the worker. That's the biblical concept. And I'm not exploiting anybody to hire this person and say, I'll pay you five bucks an hour. Well, maybe not. And again, we're all, when we talk about the sweatshops in, in Asia or somewhere, we're talking about a lot of things we don't know. We hear all this stuff. Remember all the stuff that we're hearing? Everybody's got an agenda. So I'm not saying it's not happening. I'm just saying when you now extrapolate that statement from what's going on in Nike sweatshops to Jeff Bezos at Amazon and say, see, they're all evil, yeah, we got to be very careful and not make those kind of broad judgments. Uh, Bob, yeah.
Right. Yeah, great point. And, and that factors in the, the corruption of governments, especially leftist governments, it's huge. When I was in Haiti a few years ago, I'm walking around going, this is a gold mine, except the government is so corrupt there, they are keeping all the money for themselves and the people are starving and they're not developing developing any of the market skills that could be developed there. I mean, it's the same island as Dominican, and Dominican is flourishing, and that really is because of the, the leftist uh, corruption. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great point. And that's why I said at the end there, this really is a bipartisan problem because there are so many on the right that aren't a whole lot better than the left. Spend, 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 tax, 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 government take control of everything, which is antithetical to the founding fathers. And I, I, I said this when we talked about Marxism originally. As Marx looked out at capitalism and thought we need to eradicate this, the problem he ran into was capitalism was working everywhere. And people were thriving, and they were happy, and they were prosperous. He says, oh, that's going to be hard to overturn. But slowly and patiently, they've accomplished a lot in overturning it. All the thriving economies are all free market capitalist societies for the very reason. It sounds so harsh. And that's what they say. Oh, we love people. We love the poor and the down and out. And leftist policies have done more to create more poverty and destroy lives of poor people than any other policies but it sounds really good because they're good at propaganda. All right, uh, we'll take one, one or two more. Somebody, no? All right, well, go support your local business and eat. <laughs> See you next week.